Well, good morning, everyone. Let me uh, add my welcome to you this morning. Uh, my name's Andy. Uh, we're always getting new people visiting us online. I'm Andy. I'm the pastor of the church here. Uh, I have that privilege. Um, and uh, I just wanted to say before we get going this morning that um, I, I hope, like me, you are longing for the day to come when we can all be meeting back together again on a Sunday morning. Uh, that we've had countless meetings in trying to plan this. Um, and uh, for those of you who are uh, members of the church or who get our correspondence regularly, um, you will be receiving a letter, hopefully at some point this week, giving you, out, lying out for you, the plans that we have for bringing a congregation back into the building. Uh, if you don't get our correspondence, our emails from the office, then do get in touch with the office and we, we can send that to you. We'd love for you all to be as informed as possible about how things are going. We're hoping this is going to be fairly soon, so please bear that in your prayers. Uh, let's pray together now before we look at our passage this morning. Father, I do ask for your help now as we commit this time to you. And I ask that you would speak to each of us through your word this morning, revealing more of your wisdom and your salvation to us. Father, open our eyes so that we might see wonderful things in your word today. Amen. Amen. Well, now, there have been some pretty strange death accounts, haven't there, throughout history. I wonder if you know about some of these. Uh, take the death of the mad monk Gregory, uh, Gregory Rasputin, for example. I remember as a child being told about this. You've probably heard the accounts of just how hard this guy was to kill. The, <coughs> the Russian nobles of the day were concerned about the influence that Rasputin was gaining over the royal family. And so they plotted his death. Uh, and on the morning of the 30th of December 1916, they invited him over for tea and cakes laced with cyanide. <coughs> Rasputin reportedly munched his way through a whole plate of these without any effect and then washed it all down with three glasses of Madeira wine also laced with cyanide. Uh, that attempt having failed, his would-be assassin excused himself from the room, went to fetch a revolver, came back and uh, told Rasputin to say his prayers and shot him in the chest. The plotters then, so that they could cover their trail and give themselves an alibi, uh, disappeared off to, to make arrangements and when they returned a little while later to check on the body, Rasputin reportedly leapt up and attacked them, uh, chasing the assassin through the palace grounds. They eventually managed to shoot him again, this time point-blank in the forehead, and then they threw his body into a freezing river. Now, you would imagine that was all overkill, uh, but the story goes that at the autopsy, water was found in Rasputin's lungs, suggesting that even in the river, this man was still fighting for his life. That's pretty grisly, isn't it? Other historic deaths I find intriguing include that of this chap, Sigurd the, Mind the Mighty. He was a, a Viking warlord who earned that title of the Mighty through his legendary conquest of Scotland. Now, he was doubtless a monster of a man. And near the end of his reign, he killed his great rival, Maelbrigte, 
decapitating the body and then tying the head to the saddle of his horse as he rode away, like a, as a trophy hanging there by his legs. But unfortunately, as, uh, as Sigurd rode off, his leg was scratched by the tooth of Brigid's head swinging there by his saddle. And the scratch became inflamed and infected and eventually killed this mighty warlord through blood poisoning. Incredible, isn't it? Uh, it's all very grisly, but how about this one? Adolf Frederick, the King of Sweden, who passed away on the 12th of February, 1771, after consuming a particularly enormous meal. At this dinner, he ate lobster, caviar, sauerkraut and kippers, stuffed himself with them, uh, all the while drinking copious amounts of champagne. And then this was topped off with 14, 14 servings of his favourite dessert, Selma, a kind of sweet bun he liked soaked in hot milk. The astonishing amount of food was enough to end the king's life. And he remains one of few rulers in history to have eaten himself to death. Incidentally, Sarah tells me when I, when I shared this with her, that that list of people who ate, of monarchs who ate themselves to death, includes our very own Henry I, who died of, and this is the account say, a surfeit of lampreys, which being translated means he stuffed himself to literal bursting point with eels and simply keeled over. Well, history's never boring, is it? But why start with telling you all of this? Because in the passage that we're looking at this morning, we have Mark's account of the death of Jesus Christ, his last hours. And he points out for us in these verses a number of unique and intriguing details about the circumstances in which Jesus died. A strange darkness descends. Tiago's been talking to us about this, hasn't he? And Jesus cries out with a loud voice at the point of his death and a, and a curtain tears somewhere off in the rest of town in the temple. Each of these is hugely significant. And the whole incident actually culminates at the end in a Roman centurion standing by the cross, uttering those words in verse 39, look. Surely this was the Son of God. So this morning we're going to look together at those details to which Mark is drawing our attention. The darkness, the cry, the curtain, and the confession. But before we get there, before we look at the first of those, we need to stop and consider again, and, and please give me your attention as we do this, why Jesus is hanging there on the cross. Now, on one level, you see, you can make a case that Jesus is on the cross because the Jewish leaders hated and conspired against him. You could say that the brutal sacrifice of Jesus is as a result of a totalitarian Roman regime that won't allow their authority to be challenged. Or you could say that it's perhaps because of the cowardice of men in authority who bowed to the demands of the crowd rather than standing up for justice. Uh, now those are all the human factors contributing to why Jesus is there on the cross. But all of those factors look at the cross through a very narrow lens. 
They're like the worm's eye view, sort of looking up from the foot of the cross and not really taking it all in. But you see, the Bible, as we open the Bible, actually from cover to cover, in fact, is interested in getting us to see a a, a bigger view, like a bird's eye view of everything, to take in the big picture, even the cosmic picture of what is going on here. Jesus is 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 on the cross because of the sin of the world. And if you don't understand that, then none of what follows makes sense. Consider this incredible summary sentence from Jesus just a few days earlier. It's in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. We've referred to it a few times, but listen carefully. Jesus says this, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself, the Son of Man, tells us that the reason he came, that is, the reason that the Son of God became flesh and bone, was to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is on the cross here, paying a ransom. Now, we perhaps understand that word ransom in the context of kidnappers making a demand for money from a loved one of a victim that they've abducted. But in Jesus's day, what images would that have conjured up? Well, the best I can tell, that was a word used in the slave market of Jesus's day. It was the price required to free a slave, the ransom. If you were a king, for example, and a neighbouring power attacked and took some of your citizens captive as prisoners of war. You had a choice. You could either be let them taken into forced labour in a foreign land, or you could offer to buy them back at the ransom price, to buy them, set them free. And Jesus paints this picture on purpose. He wants those reading, Mark wants those reading to get this, because the whole reason Jesus came was to free slaves, slaves like you and me. And he says as much here in this verse, doesn't he? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, how, how am I a slave? I mean, really, Andy, that's a strong word to use. Well, an answer, just a very brief answer, Jesus says this, He says, it's in John chapter 8, verse 34. I tell you the truth, says Jesus. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. You hear those words? This is a simple and profound statement. If you can identify any sin in your life, any sin in word or thought or deed that is done in disobedience to God then you've identified slavery in your life. For some some people, this is obvious, isn't it? You know, if you're struggling with an addiction or a bad habit, something, something you do that you wish you didn't do, this is obvious to you. It feels like slavery. You wish you were free. But for the rest of us, listen, if you think that sin has no mastery over you, like a slave master, then try going 24 hours without sinning. Actually, if you're honest with yourself, try going five minutes. 
Because the fact of the matter is we cannot go five minutes without doing something sinful, saying some kind of half-truth or some hurtful words or having some kind of lustful or prideful or angry thought. How long can you go without those things coming into your mind? And you might think to yourself, well, yes, Andy, but, but that's, not, that's not murder, is it? Well, no, but it is disobedience and rebellion against your creator. And listen, that's big. And part of our problem is we don't get how big that is, that we, tiny little creatures, should rebel against our great and mighty and wonderful creator. And we do live our days day to day, don't we? As if the one who made us and the one who gives us life and breath can be ignored, can be mocked, can be despised. We do as a culture, don't we, show contempt for his rightful rule over us. Thinking and even actually arguing, don't we, that we know better than him about how we ought to live our lives, the things we should and shouldn't do. Now listen, this is just a very, actually a very superficial understanding of sin that I'm outlining for you. But I hope it starts to make the point. We're all sinful. We all sin each and every day. And all of it adds up. And here's where it all connects. It becomes a debt that accumulates daily, getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. A debt that we can never even start to pay back. Why can't we pay it back? Because, as I'm sure you've heard me say before, even in our best moments, even in our most supreme efforts, we only still manage to momentarily do what we ought to be doing all the time. Do you remember how Jesus summed up God's most important commands for us? Yeah, these are commands. He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. That's the base level of how we should behave and live each day. So what, do you think you deserve some sort of credit because you gave 50 quid to a charity last week? Some sort of pat on the back for doing just what you should be doing and even then badly? No, our debt of sin before God, listen, it is a colossal debt and it is growing with every passing day. And the wrath of God against that sin is being stored up for a great day of judgment. That's, that's news that should make people tremble if you've never realised that before. And it's also why the cross is such good news. We have got tremendous news in those verses that we just read this morning. Sin has us enslaved, but Jesus gave his life, why? To pay our ransom, to buy us back, to cancel our debt, to set us free. And with that said, now let's have a look at what happened at the cross and see how it all fits together. First of all, the darkness. Look with me at verse 33. At the sixth hour, Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Do you see, for three hours, Jesus hangs on the cross, nailed to that beam, suspended between heaven and earth, fighting for every breath. 
and it's about noon, that's what the sixth hour of the day is, halfway through the day, that they finally have got him nailed up and crucified. And as the crowds stand around mocking and jeering at him, an unearthly darkness descends over the scene. At noon, when the sun should be at its zenith, you know, that sound effect that Tiago just played us with wolves. Imagine, in the middle of the day, bright hot sun, suddenly darkness, so dark that the wolves are howling in the background. It would be pretty intimidating and frightening, wouldn't it? The light of the sun is somehow blotted out. And listen, this is not a solar eclipse for at least two reasons. One, I mean, I've, have you ever witnessed a solar eclipse? They last about five minutes, okay? They're, they're, over in a, they're over pretty quickly. You can barely get your camera set up to take a picture. And two, a solar eclipse is actually impossible at Passover because Passover is always celebrated at a full moon and you can't have an eclipse of the sun the same day as a full moon. So it's not, a, it's not an eclipse. And clearly then, if it's not an eclipse and it's not clouds because the people witnessing this were not stupid... This is a supernatural event. And we're supposed to ask ourselves, why? Why? What does this mean? The only time when a supernatural darkness fell before was when? Was when God was judging Egypt with a plague of darkness at the time of the Exodus. Do you remember that story? In fact, if you go to the prophets and you look at the book of Amos, you'll find that when God is pronouncing the terrible judgment that is about to fall on Israel because of the wickedness of the nation, which has reached a level that, that God can stand no longer, he says, in that day, Amos 8 verse 9, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I mean, it's, it's a pretty amazing prophecy, actually, that, isn't it? What does it mean? It means that the darkness there is being used as a dramatic symbol of the judgment of God falling on mankind. And the darkness here in Mark 15, then, is a picture, then, of God's judgment falling on sin. And that's the first peculiar thing, actually, when you sit and think about it for a moment. Because the one hanging there, drawing the judgment upon himself, is, in fact, the perfect, innocent, sinless Son of God. And he hangs there on a cross like a lightning rod, attracting this judgment to him. Why would the judgment of God fall on an innocent victim? Why? Well, the answer is found in what Mark records next. We've seen the darkness. Now we see the cry. Look at verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing here heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes and takes him down, he said. 
These words from Jesus on the cross are often misunderstood. Just as they actually were, if you look, when Jesus first uttered them, people are misunderstanding them even in the crowd around him. Jesus is here quoting the first line from Psalm 22. And Mark puts in a translation for his readers, because Jesus is speaking in Aramaic. And is the, the, the translation comes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is crying along with David, the writer of that psalm, asking why God has so utterly abandoned him. Jesus has been forsaken by his father. Now, I'm sure that much ink has been spilt in trying to plumb the depths of what that could possibly mean. But the fact of the matter is this, listen. In his human nature, as a man of flesh and blood like you and me, Jesus here feels acutely abandoned by God, deserted by him, like as if God can, can barely bear to look at him, can't stand him. And it is agonizing to Jesus when he feels that. How can that be so? What could cause God to do that? What could cause that state of separation for Jesus? Only one thing could do that. And it's sin. Sin. In his humanity, Jesus feels for the first time ever the separating results of sin. Sin which drives that massive rift between mankind and our holy God. Jesus is taking our sin on the cross and he is bearing for three dark hours in his body our sin and the judgment that it deserves from God. But Mark tells us that some of those standing by didn't get it. They didn't, they didn't understand the connection. They had no idea what was going on. In fact, they think that Jesus is calling for Elijah. Elijah! Why have you forsaken me? That's what they think they've just heard Jesus say from the cross. And it's understandable on one level because in actual fact, the difference between the two words in Aramaic, between the words uh, for God and for Elijah, is the difference between Eloi and Eli. Uh, there's not much to it. But, but, but why would they jump to that conclusion about what Jesus is saying? Well, there was a Jewish tradition about Elijah. Perhaps you know the story of Elijah and how Elijah died. He didn't actually die. <laughs> he was instead taken up in a whirlwind and escorted by chariots of fire from heaven. Uh, that, that's where we get that song, you know, the swing low, sweet chariot kind of song. It's all about Elijah. In actual fact, it's wrong because he wasn't taken by a chariot. He was taken by a whirlwind. But never mind, that's neither here nor there. You see, the Jews believed that actually Elijah would return in times of crisis to protect and to rescue the righteous. If you were a truly a righteous person, Elijah would come to deliver you. Well, that explains their response in verse 36, doesn't it? And, and, and please get this. This is why this is sort of important. They still think that Jesus is, is protesting his innocence even on the cross. Calling Elijah is like saying, I'm righteous. Why isn't Elijah coming to get me? 
And so they start to mock him, do you see? Leave him alone, they say, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Can you see how they have utterly missed the point? Rather than asking for vindication and rescue, no, Jesus is feeling the agony of pouring out his life as a ransom for sinners to rescue them. And so the three hours come to an end. But as they do, two things occur. The first, Mark tells us about, is the curtain in verse 37. Have a look. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, it's a very interesting couple of verses there. I don't know how many deathbeds you might have been at, but by all accounts, this is extraordinary. You would expect that Jesus, after all he's been through, would simply fade away as the last embers of strength and life leave his body. That's what normally happens. But no, Jesus dies with a loud, I would say victorious, cry. He doesn't just fizzle out. He goes out with a bang. Do you see? And then, in a dramatic move, something very peculiar happens with what Mark does here. Mark switches scene. It's like he stops using this camera and switches to a completely other camera. He goes from the cross to the temple. He takes us down the hill of Golgotha, back to the city, up the road to the temple, takes us through the various courts of the temple and right into the holy place, the holiest of holy places where only the priests could minister. See, that's the way that things were in the temple. And it was all highly symbolic. And it made a point that you couldn't miss. Take a look at this picture. See, the temple complex was vast. Uh, and it followed a general pattern, though, and you can kind of see it there. At the heart, you see in the middle there, was the holiest place. And that was where God's holy presence was said to dwell. How close you got to that heart of the temple was determined by how pure and how undefiled and how free from sin you were. So if you look at that picture, the first court was the court of the Gentiles, because they were dirty, weren't they, the Gentiles? And then the next court was the court of the women. Now, you had to be Jewish to enter into that court. You could go as a family, but only Jewish families went past that point. And further in, you had the court of Israel. That was for men only. Next was the court of the priests. And then, after you got the court of the priests who had been purified for service, you then had those who'd been really purified, and they were allowed to minister in the holy place further in. But no one was permitted to go into the holiest place. And that was only with an exception of one man, the high priest. And he could only go into that place on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he had to do some serious cleansing rituals and sacrifices before he could do that. He had to put on special sin-free clothing that would be acceptable to God. He had to wash himself, sacrifice a bull and other animals. He had to sprinkle blood everywhere. It was a, 
a day's work of cleansing to get him into that holiest place. And tradition tells us that even after all of that purification and all those clothes on, they still had bells sewn into the hem of his garment and a rope attached to him so that as he entered, they could tell if he was still alive because they could hear the jingling of the bells. And if the jingling of the bells stopped and it meant that he'd been struck down by God for being unholy, they could pull him out with the rope. What did all of that tell you? Why all of this? Well, it was obvious, wasn't it? It's telling you, you cannot enter where God is. You can't go there. They understood, do you see, the utter defilement of sin. You don't take that into God's presence. It is dangerous for anyone, even a little bit contaminated by sin, to go anywhere near God in his awesome holiness. And so to protect you from that fearful reality, if you were a priest ministering in the holy place, there was a thick curtain. They say, actually, that it was about the thickness of the width of a palm. That's a lot of fabric, do you see? And it separated even those ritually pure priests from God's presence. Do you see the staggering reality then behind what Mark tells us in verse 38? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The glorious finality of that sentence is incredible. As Jesus breathes his last, the barrier between mankind and our fearfully holy maker is removed. Torn, you notice, from the top to the bottom. God removes it. Heaven takes hold of the top of that 30-foot tall curtain and rips it apart. Jesus has paid our ransom. He has removed all the barriers. And now you and I might come to God through him. He, you see, is the key to the whole thing. You're starting to understand the cross, maybe a little bit? Because when you see it, it changes everything. And Mark ends this crucifixion scene with a most unexpected confession. Have a look in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Now, perhaps you remember when we started Mark's gospel together back in 2018, <laughs> Mark opened his book by announcing that this book was, verse 1 of chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in the first eight chapters, we saw Mark giving us layer upon layer of evidence, putting it forward to, to back up that opening claim, the miracles that Jesus did, the good news about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Then we got to chapter 8, and the, finally the disciples realise, they come to the conclusion that Jesus must be the promised Christ, what the Jews called the Messiah, the one who had come to deliver the nation from their enemies. But the surprise here 
at the end of Mark's gospel is that the only person to confess that second truth about Jesus, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, is who? Is a Gentile. One of the ones that can't go anywhere near the holy place, do you remember? And not just a Gentile, a centurion with his dirty, murderous hands in the Roman military. Here is a man who was most likely present to witness the trial before Pilate, to witness the brutal flogging and that ghoulish pantomime as uh, the legion dresses him up as a king and mocks him and beats him and ridicules him. He's overseen the transport to Golgotha, the place of execution, and the crucifixion itself. And he's heard the jeering crowds. He's seen the mocking priests. And when the darkness fell, and the cry of victory rang out as Jesus slumped in death, his eyes were opened. Do you see? Now, we've got no idea how he reached this conclusion. No idea at all except to say that God opened his eyes. An unknown, a sinner, a man who had ended so many lives in the dirty service of Rome, he suddenly sees, this man's like, is unlike any man I've ever met. No one dies this way. And all the pieces suddenly come together. Surely this man was the son of God. Surely, it's the only thing that makes sense to him now. And so as we finish, I just want to remind you of a question that we have repeatedly asked as we've gone through Mark's gospel. This is who the Roman centurion says he is, but who do you say that he is? My prayer is that you too will reach the conclusion that that Roman soldier reached and you will come and humble yourself before him. For if Jesus is the Son of God, and if he has given his life, as he said, as a ransom for many, then your and my debt of sin can be truly paid. It's been done. And so the choice before us is a simple choice, isn't it? So you can either say, do you know what? I don't want anyone to pay for my sin. I will deal with it. I will handle it. Or you can come by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Saviour, the one who gave his life as a ransom, and thank him and give your life to him instead. Well, next Sunday, we're going to conclude Mark's Gospel. And it does have a glorious finale. So make sure you don't miss that. But let me close in prayer for us now. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for sending him to be our substitute, to bear the judgment and the wrath that our sins deserve, to suffer that abandonment so that we could be united with you, could be ransomed, healed, restored and forgiven, so that we could have peace with you and the hope of eternal life. And so we praise you now for your salvation and for your Saviour, in whose good name we pray. Amen.
Well, let's finish our time now with singing our final song, which is Amazing Grace.